Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The 1099. I am your host, Joseph Noop, and as always, I am so glad that you are here with us, especially in these very weird, difficult times. It kind of feels like we've been in, uh, you know, month month nine of quarantine, uh, making gradual trips to the grocery store, fighting over paper towels and everything. I finally got some, so we're, we're fine on that front. Uh, to no one's surprise, though, it looks like physical game conventions and conferences are just super sparse this year. Of course, Game Developers Conference is delayed. E3 is all but canceled slash postponed, whatever word you want to use. And hey, even one of my favorite places to work, IGN, has just announced that it's hosting its own summer of gaming event. But we've still got one of my favorite events left to look forward to. And rather than the spectacle of a new Call of Duty preview or Nintendo building New Donk City in the middle of a convention center, this event focuses on all the beauty and power of narrative adventure games. Ludo Naricon, now in its second year, is returning from April 24th through April 27th. It's a free digital convention hosted on Steam that celebrates the best in narrative-focused video games like Neocab, Sam Barlow's Telling Lies, Hypnospace Outlaw, and plenty more. I really wanted to take the time to explore how a show like Ludo Naricon comes together and what these narrative games still have to teach us in an era where gaming just keeps getting bigger and broader. And, you know, who better to educate us on something like that than fellow traveler's own Chris Wright. Chris, how are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. How are yourself? I am great. And, you know, with fellow traveler, would you consider yourself a, a co-founder or did you come on afterwards? Um, yeah, so I was the, basically the founder of the business um, in, initially with a wonderful. couple of co-founders joining. And wonderful. I, you know, it, it is, I we, for, we were talking a little bit about it before we started recording. I actually helped cover Ludo Naricon for GameDaily.biz uh, under the tutelage of the wonderful Amanda Farrow. Uh, f but last year, when you guys had your first event and it was this you know brand new thing, like, oh, cool, a, a digital conference for uh, narrative games, the, the kinds of uh, visual novel style and very Sam Barlow-esque kind of storytelling that uh, you know, maybe doesn't uh, get on the stage quite as often as it ought to on something on, on an event like E3 or whatnot. But here's this event where we can celebrate what makes these games specials and, and learn something about them in the process too. So uh, you guys personally describe Ludo Naricon as an experiment designed to address discoverability, which I know is a huge issue for indie games of all stripes, especially on platforms like Steam. Was that the initial origin of the idea for Ludo Naricon? Like, was that kind of the the first conversation you had? Where where did the original idea truly begin to form? Yeah, sure. So it's Ludo Naricon was probably about a year or so in the sort of gestating period. And then it came together very, very quickly at the end. And and the initial, I guess, uh, factor driving it was that we were going to all these events. We were going to PAX East, we were going to PAX West, we were going to Gamescom, um, traveling, flying over from Australia um, to attend these shows. And we'd have a great time and we'd always love going, but we were looking at it and just saying, wow, we're spending a lot of money and time. And are we really getting um, the benefit back? Is this really working? Um, you know, events were this thing that indie games were supposed to do, right? And so you did them because everybody else does them. And and it's sort of there, and you get into this kind of like cycle of doing them 
um, and enjoying them and having fun. Uh, but we were starting to look back and say, well, is this working well? Um, and especially for our kind of games, like as a label, we focus on narrative driven games, particularly innovative narrative games. And we were more and more feeling like the noisy, crowded show floor was not the place to experience these beautiful, calm, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> games, right? Um, and a 15 minute demo isn't really possible and your friends want to go check out something else. You know, it's, it's just not a great way to show these games off. So we were like, look, what are we going to do instead? Um, and we were talking about that for, for a while, I guess. Um, we were also looking for ways that we could kind of pursue the company's mission beyond just publishing games. So, you know, we can, we're a small label, we publish five, six games a year, but there's so many great games out there. And, and our mission really is to try to uh, move games forwards as a storytelling medium is like the highfalutin kind of like um, mission statement. But essentially, we just want to kind of support those developers that are trying to do new and interesting stuff in this space. So we were looking for ideas around, okay, how do we, how do we help other developers that we can't publish in this space? How do we kind of lift up um, all the boats essentially, right? Um, so those two things were going on. And then towards the end of 2018, um, Steam added streaming to its platform. You could stream to mm -hmm. your store page. And all the meetings we had with Steam and, and they were having with developers, they were really pushing how great this was and, and so on. So we were like, wow, we need to figure out how we can take advantage of that um, technology. And, and then somehow those two ideas kind of mashed together and we're like, oh, wow, hang on. Like, what if we did a, an event, but on steam by streaming how would that work and and from that initial idea we kind of then just dove into like okay what would we lose how could it work is this even possible and and that's really where ludonaricon was born from it's funny we talk so much about steam uh, you know being the primary platform for an event like this too is because uh we talk about the, the problem of discoverability at a convention yes it's i i've been in many a, a demo uh, spur of the moment or planned where it's like, yeah, I, I really want to like give myself over to this game and like let it envelop me. But that is hard when someone's playing, uh, you know, a, a, a top down shoot 'em up like five feet over there and like everyone's going, ah, oh. but uh, Steam itself has had a history of discoverability issues for developers too. That's that seems like a very common topic you hear about at you know discussed at events like GDC. Well, how do you get your your indie game covered and discovered and uh, and have those uh, serendipitous uh, interactions? And so was this a, a matter of just saying, well, okay, let's coordinate and and get these games really on the front page during this special day. Uh, or were there other things like in terms of uh, digital discoverability that you guys have had to consider over the years? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, with Luda Narcon, it really was about how can we put these games, uh, you know, front and foremost, right, in, with their own sort of spotlight on them uh, and to do that in a place where it can make a big difference, you know, on, on the big, big storefront. Um, and discoverability is a really interesting topic. It's like one of my... Um, the things that kind of gets me really excited or <laughs> I love to dive into. And it's, it's one of those things that I think gets talked about a lot, but isn't necessarily fully understood. So I think the first part you have to understand about discoverability is that it's an inherent piece of the, of the landscape that we're in. It's not something that can be solved or something that can go away, um, but it is a constant challenge that we all sort of face in this modern games industry. Um, it, you know, essentially, if you're going to open up uh, and remove the barriers to entry, you will have a lot more content coming in. And then you have a challenge of, well, how do I find the content that I want? 
right? So this is true across every medium. If you think about Netflix, if you think about Spotify or iTunes, um, everything that's opened up and 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 reduced those barriers to entry. Um, the great thing is we get so much interesting content that never would have come through before because it would have been stopped by the gatekeepers. That the bad news is that the vast majority of it is just not going to find an audience, and that will never not be the case in an open kind of democratized uh, platform. Um, you know, so so when people sort of look at you know how many bands on Spotify, what percentage makes virtually no money? It's like that's that's inherent. You're never going to actually change that because um, it's always going to be um, that a huge amount of content comes in that just kind of cannot possibly find an audience because of the wealth of content that's that's there right the great thing is though surprises come out of that people that maybe never would have broken through before have now an opportunity to do so right and i think in the last 10 years in games we've we've all benefited um so much um from that right so so as publishers as developers and as stores we're all thinking about well how do we deal with this discoverability challenge which is inherent to the landscape so you know stores are trying to to do that through um, systems like steam's got a lot of algorithms and tools to help people search through user reviews other ways to kind of surface content um, and what the storefronts are trying to do is really trying to optimize traffic right if, if they can show you more stuff that you like you're going to spend more money at the end of the day right um, and then other stores like say epic game store or gog they take kind of like a curation approach where they they only put certain amount of content on there and they're trying to make like human judgments around what they think mm. will work right so stores are trying to do it from that side from our side as a publisher what we're trying to do is get the game in front of people get it in front of the right people um so that they can essentially um discover it and, and notice it um you know so um events is one way of doing that you've got eighty thousand people ninety thousand people and in a big convention like a pax um, is one way of kind of like pushing it in front of them. Obviously, PR, um, advertising, um, getting it in the big press conferences, at things like E3, those things put it in front of a lot of eyeballs. Um, and Ludonaucon was another attempt to find another way to um, to put these games in front of a large audience um, and hopefully the kind of audience that's interested uh, in this kind of game. It's a. Uh, it's funny to think about the the mix of like you say uh, curation versus algorithmic kind of discoverability and on on platforms like Steam. And I remember you know, when Steam introduced like the tag system and saying like, well, okay, this is this game is a shooter or this game is a uh, narrative focused, uh, and like how cool it was to finally say like, okay, cool, like I uh, do I do I want to only look at games that are like about you know uh mid mid-century intrigue or something like that some random tag uh it, you were slowly beginning to get that uh you know empowering the customer in a way uh which i'm sure is, is good on all fronts the both the developer and publisher and steam and uh i guess it, is that kind of how you look at things too at a at a label like fellow traveler you say you publish maybe five to six games a year uh is that something like well how, how do you balance those business decisions of saying like yeah we think that this will appeal to enough people to make it worth our effort but also this is a thing that we can be proud to help out yeah it's, it's an interesting challenge so a big part of my job at the company is finding those new games um so i worked with our scout felix and we uh, we literally just did 
about 30 odd phone calls to replace all our GDC meetings, right? The developers yeah. just pitching us, <laughs> pitching that. us games. And I want to, I usually come out of that wanting to sign all of them and having to then like look at which ones we actually can sign and, and which ones are the, are the ones that'll make it through. But it, it, yeah, absolutely. And we're a little bit different than most indie publishers and in that we have a very clear idea of a particular kind of game that fits what we do. And, and the, I launched, um, fellow traveler back in 2011 after I left THQ um, where I was in sort of marketing and publishing there. Um, and the original concept was um, building indie record labels for indie games. And it was still relatively early in the days of indie games at that point. And, and even the idea of indie publishers felt like it was, was sort of counter to the idea of being indie, right? When we, when we announced mm. the label in 2013, we had a bunch of people sort of saying, how, how do those two things fit together, right? And whereas now it sort of feels pretty normal. There's, there's 100 or 200 indie, indie labels, right? But the idea was like indie record labels, like I'd grown up listening to in the 80s and 90s, um, they all had a sound. They all had a kind of like a flavor to them. I use Sub Pop as the example because it's the one that everyone kind of knows and it, it had its kind of like grunge sound in the 90s and now it's kind of in more of an alt folk kind of iron and wine kind of um, style, right? But you, you sort of know that, hey, here's a band that I haven't heard before, but it's on this label and they've got like three other bands that I like on that label, so I'm probably going to like this, right? So those labels were kind of performing a function in, in helping people discover new music. And the idea behind um, us as a publisher is that we want to do the same thing um yeah so look, that's that's always been our kind of idea so we sort of feel we can add the most value to the games that and the developers that we work with if we can bring an audience to fellow traveler um that is likely to like so they like, like neocab and hopefully they'll like in other waters which we just launched last week and maybe then they'll like genesis noir later this year and, and so sort of people can sort of say hey i like fellow travelers taste and be willing to take more of a chance on the games that we bring through so that's kind of our strategy as a as a publishing label to to build an audience around this one kind of game um and to take them with us as as we go forwards rather than kind of saying hey we've got this local multiplayer game over here and now we've got a shooter and now we've got a puzzle game and and having variety which is also fine as a strategy it's just it's just not the way that that we've decided to go it's funny to think about the 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 similarities you're drawing between music labels and now now game publishing labels i'm i'm 27 so i was really i guess really one of the last like mm, like decades worth of people to grow up where cds were a pretty consistent means to to an end with my music consumption at least for a while i I did eventually get like a sony a digital sony walkman not a a tape walkman yeah uh but i I do remember things like victory records uh was very influential in terms of me discovering like oh here's all this emo music and uh even though i've never heard of this band named aiden or uh this or that like okay the you know i i know that there's going to be a flavor of music here and i can that will obviously help that business in a sense of saying like you know what to expect from us but also like you know that we're we're working hard to make this something worth uh checking out and i think that uh, to to the benefit of a label structure that also still allows for surprises too like victory records being another great example of that where 90 percent of their output was kind of like trashy 
emo music that ended up on like the warp tour circuit uh but then for at least a couple of their records i think you had between the buried and me which is this you know great uh progressive metal band and like really what for a lot of people my age was kind of the first taste of a much more progressive uh style of music and i like to think that that could happen in games too where it's like you like uh you, you heard about that one indie game that got a bunch of awards and like, you know, somehow made it onto the stage at uh, the game awards or something. Uh, well, you know, Hey, from the studio that brought you X game, uh, you might like this new thing too. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if you look at Devolver, they've done a huge amount of work to lift up the indie scene on the back mm-hmm. of the success of games like hotline Miami. And then they, I mean, they are one of the indie publishers that really do have a, a sense of style and flavor even though their output is actually incredibly varied um but you you can have a sort of good sense of what comes out on that label you know and i think they they do kind of open the door for a lot of the rest of us um through what they've achieved uh, and being kind of like an early indie um star label i guess that, that that's come through um so yeah i mean hopefully what happens is that people start to trust us and and trust that when we put something out it'll be good but also it will be will be interesting um and our sort of curation or you know is one again it's one way to try and help with its discoverability because if if uh, players can see a developer's name or a publisher's name and get more of a sense of what the game's going to be they're more likely to take that that chance on something that 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 they uh otherwise maybe haven't heard that much about right yeah and it's a it's a thing too where i think that like a really really good publisher especially a more indie label one of course is uh one that is willing to uh, explore different kinds of like you know coverage opportunities for the games that it's uh, working on. I actually just had a uh, meeting with um, uh, Yeesbird Games, uh, who is publishing World of Horror and uh, Valhalla, which is the sequel to or Nirvana, which is the sequel to Valhalla. The uh, or actually, you know, I, I might be wrong about what the publishing is there, but uh, long and short people like that willing to you know take time out of their what was their gdc week and uh say like you know yes i i I don't necessarily have a story that's going to go up about this but it's good to put this game in front of my journalist eyes so that way when i'm like on a podcast later i can mention it or when i'm you know writing up a like things to look for it'll be at the top of my mind kind of thing and uh yeah so hopefully hopefully it just continues that way for a lot of uh labels like fellow traveler and so we are on our second ludo Naricon now and first off congrats on making something like this work twice in a row that that isn't always the case uh with digital events or physical events and as as a year like this one has certainly shown us uh things like this are very uh, tumultuous uh, but what i i gotta ask what are the lessons that really stick out to you guys when you think back on running that first Ludo Naricon and getting a lot of those early growing pains out of the way. Yeah, sure. So in the first one, I think the first lesson was, hey, this actually worked. <laughs> and it worked way better than we <laughs> thought it would, right? Um, the idea of having like a digital festival or convention wasn't 100% new, but the idea of doing it on a storefront uh, was very different and um we kind of had to convince everybody you know steam included and a whole bunch of other developers to sort of trust us and and come along on the journey um and it worked and um we had you know better results than we'd expected across the board 
um, pretty much. And so that really convinced us, hey, we need to pull back from these physical events. We need to put um, our money into this event instead and, and, and change the way that we're doing a lot of our activity. Um, you know, so that, that definitely was the first, the first thing. Um, second thing was like demos. So I think one of the, the things that was hard the first time around was convincing developers to put up a demo. Right. Um, normally yeah. show, show demos are not consumer ready in the sense of like just letting people download them and play them. They're usually a little bit, um, clunky or they have a few little bugs and, and because you're there as the developer, you can kind of paper over those right by helping the person if they get stuck or or resetting the build and and um you know we would have developers literally bug fixing in the evening from what they'd seen during the day and then put a new build on the machine the next day <laughs> of the event right but you can't do that if you're just letting people download it so we had 20 odd games in the first one but only nine of those put up a demo um, but what we saw was um the demo side of it worked extremely well at a, at a physical convention like a PAX, let's say you've got two or three demo machines um, for a narrative game, you've got maybe over four days, 80,000 people coming through the event, 200 people playing your demo, right? It's not a mm. lot of people. Um, but what we saw was that the demos we put up were getting two to 3,000 downloads um, and that most of those were being played. And we can actually even on Steam see how long people played. So we can see that most people played for over half an hour, for example, of, of most of the demos that we put up. So we could see that that was working really well and we didn't have any sort of major issues. So this time around, we've got a lot more demos and we put a lot more focus on on that. Um, and it's been great to see things like the Game Festival, um, Jeff Keighley's event um, that he put on um, around the Game Awards last year. And then they just sort of did this, um, this one around GDC, um, which was sort of led by this idea of like people putting up their show demo um, for download and that seems to be picking up as a as a concept so um that's definitely great to see and, and something we want to put a lot more focus on for for the event uh, this time and, and for the future um there was a huge amount of technical lessons like just even figuring out how do we get five different people dialing in um to a video call to then be on the panel and how do we kind of run a virtual green room and and sort of do the panel changeovers and so on um there was a lot that we had to work through to get that to work um but this time around makes it just a lot a lot smoother um and we'll, we'll make that run a lot easier um as well and, and there were some technical challenges around just how do you get your stream running on steam and then looping for four days for example <laughs> a lot of teams were doing it for the first time it was, steam streaming was still pretty new at that point so for a lot of them they, it was the first time that they were actually doing that um so thankfully we learned a lot out of that we've been able to prep teams way more this year and put together briefing guides and so on with, with all the lessons out of that so um so yeah you know all of these things are very achievable and when we spoke to the teams after the the last one we got a bunch of stats back from them you know how many visitors did they have how many wish lists did they get um but we also sort of asked them like how long did you spend preparing for this and how long did you spend preparing for your last you know major physical convention and, and how many dollars they spent and you know it, it was such a fraction of the time that it would take to go to a um you know a pax or a eurogamer expo or a gamescom um and a tiny fraction of the money most teams spent nothing at all some of them put down oh we spent 100 bucks on pizza or we had to get this piece of equipment yeah. <laughs> that they pretty much spent nothing um and so we it really sort of drummed home to us the um how much cheaper it is to do this in both time, effort, and money 
but also the the effects that we were all getting on the back end of that all the numbers of things like wish lists and so on were so much higher than we were getting out of physical events um, so it really reinforced for us this this aspect of you know we love physical events and there's some things you can't do digitally um, but from a developer point of view um, the return on investment and the benefits that you get out of doing a, a consumer facing convention like this are so high um, you know so we, I mean it's weird like we sort of felt like these conventions were the way of the future and the events of this year is kind of surprises because now obviously that it's kind of like going to be what we're ex we're going to need to expect for the next year um, and so what we're really hoping is that after this one's over we can help other people put put more of these on um, because I think as consumers and as developers we, we're going to be in a digital world for for a good 12 months even especially in times like these where everyone is kind of locked in place and we a lot of companies and and creative people have to figure out well how do I how do I manage my business uh, strictly digitally and it, it, it's you see the businesses who'd already invested in uh, uh, tools like that, you know, a, a, it's easier to do a second Ludo Naricon during a pandemic than it is a first Ludo Naricon. I gotta imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And e even just you know, with Steam, they were so supportive um, on the first one, but now they know what it is, right? We were sort of like explaining to them what we <laughs> wanted to do. They're like, okay, we can make this work and we can do that, but like now they actually understand what it is. Um, we they're, they're it's much you know able to put much more support behind it and help us out more as well and and um, yeah I, I think hopefully we've laid some groundwork it, it, as I say it's great to see things like the game festival coming through um, and um, I think Eurogamer Resed did a lot of stuff digitally um, at the last minute but I, I you know I think events later this year are going to obviously be now looking at okay how do they do digital uh, and I hope that we'll see a lot more. Of, of these kind of festivals, whether it's things like, you know, you mentioned IGN's um, Summer of Gaming, um, but hopefully also other, other events that can help indie games kind of get through in this uh, this period because, you know, physical conventions and events has been a big way for indie games to to get through and to get in front of media. And, and with those not happening, there's definitely a, a gap there in terms of channels for, the, for them to get out and get noticed we uh you, you touch on obviously the the accessibility uh aspect of all this which is of course you know developers have to spend a lot of money getting you know a plane ticket somewhere getting gear pcs demo stations whatever uh, booth materials and uh, money to stay in a city usually a very expensive one uh, and that uh, has long been a point of contention for uh, multiple you know, con conferences, uh, GDC especially being hosted in San Francisco every year. Uh, I, 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 I've told this before on the podcast, but yeah, Rami Ismail had a, an infamous like monologue to a, a One Reason to Be panel, I think it was, that he hosted, where it's like there's a sign outside that shows like, you know, everyone put a red dot on like whatever country you're from and the sign says GD or, you know, game development around the world. And he's like, that's not accurate. That's just game development from the places where people can afford to come here. Uh, so it's not really accurate of like what the game development looks like around the globe. And Ludo Naricon, of course, is is this digital event that, like, yeah, yeah, as you as you say, allows for a like, you know, blow a hundred dollars on some pizza because you know you're going to be like in the office all day doing the live stream or something like that. But you get so you get as much, if not more, uh, out of that. So, what are the what are the like accessibility concerns that 
developers had been coming to you guys and saying like, well, yeah, we would love to go to PAX or we would love to, you know, uh, be at the, um, the, the, one of the various pavilions at GDC, uh, where so many people get to walk by and look at something like that, but we just, we just can't like, what are the concerns that they were really voicing to you guys? So, I mean, for the developers that we work with, um, we were going to those events and a lot of the teams were saying to us one of the reasons they wanted to work with a publisher was that they just couldn't afford the time or the money to go sure. and do those events you know and time probably as much as just as important as the money um going to an event like gdc is, is a whole week out of your schedule but it's also several weeks preparing and then it's a week or two recovering um that's a long time in, in game development to be taking your eye off of the the core work um, so certainly we had those kind of challenges and then yeah, financially, um, it would be difficult. And so, so we, as a publisher, when we did say a booth at PAX, we would often have one, maybe two developers there, but five or six games that we were showing, um, you know, and it was always an optional thing. Uh, we would never kind of say to the developer, Hey, you have to come. Um, it was always looking at, was it suitable for them to come? Were they happy to kind of, um, pay for their costs of travel um you know we're covering all the booths etc but but they would typically like cover their travel costs um you know and, and they could maybe pick one one show to do that on uh, maybe two if they were if they were local it made it a bit bit more easy but we dealt with teams from all over the world and um you know it's four or five thousand dollars realistically to travel to the u.s and be at a show um if you're not in the u.s uh, by the time you've got flights accommodations food and everything else so yeah definitely those those factors um we haven't signed up that many games i guess from the regions that are really struggling um in terms of accessibility um but it's certainly something that we're conscious of and and a big part of the benefit of luna Narcon was you know just from our own side and fellow traveler it meant that every single one of our game teams could participate and could be there and could have be exhibiting via their store page and could participate on a panel and it wasn't just like one or two of our teams that were able to be part of, of our presence. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and we definitely saw, um, teams from, I think 15 or so countries the first time around, I'm, I'm not sure what the count is, is this time around, but we have got teams from all over the world, uh, participating. Um, and we've got distributed teams, you know, a lot of developers are not based in an office somewhere together. Often they're actually spread out across the world. Um, and that can be difficult because then they, they're either all traveling to be together at an event or, um, some of them are there and some of them are not. Um, so one of the nice things was that each of the teams could have like the whole of their dev team involved in the event instead of the one person that gets sent. Yeah. So it's much more inclusive. Or the, uh, sometimes you even see developers like sending a friend who lives locally. And I, I would ask like, oh, are you, I assume you're a developer on the game. Like, nice to meet you. And you're like, oh, well, no, actually I, I'm just like the developer's friend and I'm just here to like hold the controller until somebody wants to play, you know. Uh, and like to take the gear down when it's time to go kind of things like oh wow that's that's so harsh wow yeah yeah exactly it's it's difficult there's so many events that's the other thing and there's so if you really actually want to get a global reach you need to be at events all over the world mm. um you know because a, a, a big convention tends to be geographically localized um in terms of the audience you know there will be people traveling from interstate there'll be some people traveling internationally um but it's still ultimately concentrated on one part of the world um, but we sell globally, um, you know, our, our games. So um, and for most indie games, you're not selling huge numbers of, of um, copies. And so, you know, 
how many sales do we make in the Boston area, right? Around the PAX East, it's it's a small subset of what our overall sales are. So um, again, physical events are great, you know, and there's there's mm. there's so much wonderful about them. So I try not to diss them too much, but but when you <laughs> when you don't have a lot of money, right, and you don't have a lot of time, um, it's it, you get less value from a concentrated geographical uh, outcome than say if you're EA right where you're at all these different events and you're at all these places um so like picking which areas you go to is a bit of a challenge for for indie teams because they can't be on the road all year they'd Mm -hmm. never build the game you know and for for all the faults of physical events of course there there are a lot of like very earnest benefits to going to something like gdc if you can afford it of course and one of those is obviously uh, the ability to have a conversation with someone in person and develop that connection, uh, even the better if they're, you know, someone with their own uh, meaningful connections and you can develop that relationship and like really benefit from something like that. Or in the case of you know me being a journalist, it's, it's fun to uh, play a game and say like, hey, the developer is like right here. Like I would love to, you know, I, I don't have a story pitched or anything yet, yet, but I want to pick your brain just a little bit if you got a minute uh, just so I can better understand like what you're going for here or uh, you know maybe I can pitch this idea to my editor as a cool feature to cover kind of thing uh, and so the thing I like that Ludonericon does is you guys do host these various live streams with developers chatting about the topics that really like define their games and you see some on like relationships and social commentary etc and i guess what's important about those kinds of conversations and discussions to you guys as the people helping uh, publicize these games why like i i dare say it like you know it's almost like a a, a full third of what the focus of ludonericon is because it's one of the like you know big bullet points of Sure, you see the game, it's cool, you can play the demo, but also you can hear the developer talk about the game maybe in a live stream. And so it seems like it's really important to you guys. Uh, what, what what about those conversations is really important for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think um strongly believe that great ideas don't happen in a vacuum, right? Um, there's a guy called Steve Johnson who wrote this book uh, basically called Where Good Ideas Come From, right? And he talks about how... Um, Great ideas don't come from this lone genius who's sat in his room, like coming up with their ideas. Um, mm. It's people building off each other, and um, and you know he talks about the coffee house culture and how that leads to people meeting up and chatting, and then those ideas kind of um, building, uh, and that's how progress comes along. And that's why conventions and, and conferences like GDC are important because it's people coming together and it's sharing those ideas, and and then they spark other ideas and, and things move forwards. Um, so those kind of discussions are, are really important, and it's, it was great to see um, so much of, of the GDC content went up digitally and was accessible. Um, and things like Rami's uh, Rami Ishmael's um, Game Dev World, uh, which is a, a pure sort of digital mm-hmm. online um, convention, to, to not only bring these um, digitally, but also he he got them all translated so they were available in multiple languages, which was which was fantastic. That's really important. um, not necessarily in an obvious way um, to development. It's not like you can necessarily point to this one conversation or this one thing that led to this particular game, but in any kind of cultural medium that that meeting of the minds and the, and the sharing of conversations is, is how great things come through. Um, So for us, it's, it's a very important aspect. And I guess with Luda Naokon, what we're trying to do is, is, is do it in more of a way of like a PAX panel than a GDC panel. And that it's, 
it's how do we bring these um, topics in a, a consumer facing kind of way. So the player is the audience as opposed to other developers. Um, and how do we kind of lift the curtain a little bit about how games are made, what goes into them. Um, I don't necessarily want to use the word educate because it, it sort of almost talks down to gamers, but you know, it's sort of sharing with them, I guess, and being a bit open uh, about how these things go, um, which mm. I think can then enhance uh, the way people kind of experience art and culture when they understand a bit more about uh, from the development side, what what's gone into it. Um, so yeah, I do think they're important and it, it, it is a big part of um, Ludonaricon for us. It's kind of like the main stage right on the event page um and the central point when people come in is to, is to be watching those those panels and then then diving off to individual games and playing the demos and so on um, but the panels are absolutely the, the heart of of the event what um have you i, I assume as a, you know a, the founder of fellow traveler you've obviously had uh, a little bit of time to pour over some of them was there a particular favorite uh kind of discussion or uh, presentation that uh, came about last year's Ludonericon that like you thought oh wow you know either I learned something really interesting or like I think that this is the the pinnacle of like the kind of not necessarily education but maybe like lesson that I'm glad we're facilitating uh, for the people who you know stumble on this event gosh <laughs> that's putting me on the spot I'm not sure I want to Sorry play I'm not sure I want to play uh favorites there but I think I mean one of the first panels was people talking about the panelists talking about I guess their favorite narrative games and mm. that to me is always really interesting is to is to hear like the creators talking about the things other people have made that they, that they love and why they love them um there's a great uh, podcast called script lock um by a couple of um guys that work in in narrative and, and each of those episodes is just a discussion with a narrative designer uh, or usually two um and i love hearing it because the people that are, are working in that space have such a different kind of perspective um to me so it's awesome to sort of he hear that kind of stuff um yeah I, I i mean i had a very weird experience of the panels because i was operating the virtual green room so i was essentially um watching a little bit of the panel and then getting ready for the next panel and in this kind of like weird cycle so i ended up watching the panels on loop uh, but like five minutes at a time in not in the actual order <laughs> that the panel <laughs> happened right so i kind of like pieced them all together as i was moderating and monitoring the chat and diving between different things um but that, I thought they were great for the first year, absolutely. And I think we've got almost double the panels this year. So really looking forwards to to those um, and, and seeing what comes of them. And hopefully having a bit of, we didn't have a huge amount of like chat interaction last year. Um, it'll be interesting to see how much of that we can, we can kind of bring in this year as well and, and bring the audience in a bit more. I, I want to explore a little bit. You mentioned that you founded Fellow Traveler in 2011, right? Yeah, it's funny to me because um, I, I once wrote a piece about, uh, long story short, it was like a piece about uh, right after the 2016 election and like healthcare with game developers. And it was kind of over the course of my research, it was interesting to learn about like, you know, you had your uh, your iconic indie game launches with stuff like Braid and uh, Fez and Super Meat Boy uh, around the like 2008, 2007, maybe 2009 era and then a like two to three year gap was this next really really big surge of cool indie games that came about i i failed to you know remember one but i remember this was part of my research uh and 
I, I, I asked Sam Barlow this question when I was interviewing him about telling lies. Uh, but does it does it feel like narrative games have reached a new renaissance in the last like you know five years or so? Of course, we have stuff like uh, you know Telltale's various series, but now we're getting like throwback things too, like Thimbleweed Park a few years ago, and you find games like uh, Twelve Minutes in Xbox's uh, E3 sizzle reel last year. Uh, and to me, that kind of also connects to what you guys say, you know, on the on the fellow traveler site. You guys are looking for indie games that quote push the boundaries of narrative. So, how does that play into like I guess wh- how has fellow traveler evolved since 2011 in terms of uh, uh, saying like this is this is an indie game that's really doing something different and this is an indie game that we would be proud to uh to to help yeah sure so so i mean in terms of evolution we didn't start as a narrative focused label um we had that initial idea of of um being like a record label finding a flavor and initially the idea was um australian games we're based here in australia the australian industry Mm. was being um just absolutely smashed by um GFC and studios shutting down. We, we we more than or we we went to less than half the number of employed developers in the country in the space of like two years, right? Uh, oh, and there wow. was maybe a six-year period of studios closing. Essentially, was with some of those lasting out to about 2014 or so. Um, so all the big studios were shutting, including the ones that I worked at um, at the point that basically was made redundant and, and came up with the idea of starting the, the label. Um, and so initially it was like yes let's let's work with the local teams let's help help the local teams um uh recover local local industry recover Uh, a couple of years in we kind of realized that that was fantastic on one level but consumers don't actually really care where games come from um they're not looking for games from one particular country or culture in the same way that you know music did evolve like you know grunge out of seattle etc games haven't quite been the the same and so we looked around at what what games we were passionate about what we felt was the most interesting space to be in and, and narrative was where we we settled on um and a big part of that for me is what's exciting about indie games in general is variety and surprise and discovery and innovation um, because indie developers um, tend to succeed not so much by being the best at a particular thing but by doing something really unique and different sometimes that that none of us realized we actually wanted right until it turns up so um you know you mentioned sam barlow something like her story right it's it's not a hugely expensive game it's definitely got some rough edges but it's such a unique and interesting experience you know, mm-hmm. you know papers please is another one that would, would come back to again and again you know in terms of not not a crazy expensive game mostly made by one person but doing something really really different and um getting its attention and breaking through and changing the kind of the medium as a result so indie games to me that's that's the exciting thing is that they're they're exploring all these spaces that traditional games just hadn't really bothered to because it was quite a small number of games being released each year and large budgets and so on and, and the, the mainstream industry tends to shave off a lot of stuff around the edges right um and for me what's exciting about narrative is that there is the most unexplored space is a narrative um mm. mechanically a lot of things have been explored and mined right and there's still little gems there in something like metroidvanias uh, for example but a lot of that has kind of been found right or platformers or um certain genres so it's not to say that things can't come from there but there's just maybe less space left to explore but narrative is so open 
Um, there's so many stories that games are not trying to tell yet um, that games can try to tell. There's so much room in terms of how the narrative and the gameplay interact and how that story, what sort of um, way the stories are told. Um, so for us, it's the most exciting space to, to be in um, because there's so much potential for that discovery and that, that unexpected to come through and, and to do so on a relatively small budget still. Um, we're certainly seeing now 10 years into like this big indie um, revolution that you've got a lot of what people call like triple I indie games that are five, $10 million budgets um, or pl plus, right? And so mm. that sense of what an indie game is now, it kind of varies from these extreme, like the wild lands of each, as, as I call it, um, you know, up to these, <laughs> up to these kind of like $20 million games that are, that are independent. Um, and so, um, but narrative is still a place where you can do some really amazing stuff on relatively low budgets, which which gives those teams more freedom to to experiment and, and try things out. So for me, that's kind of like the really exciting space. Um, and I think yes, we are we are in a new renaissance of narrative games, but really building on the back of this renaissance of indie games, um, and um, again building on what Telltale did. Um, building on um, games like Papers, Please, this sort of next wave of, of indie games that's trying to explore further still, and, and there'll be further waves that build on on, on these games and, and keep kind of it, it moving forwards. Um, so I think it is exciting. It, it's, it's exciting for games in general that we're in this place because there's so much choice um, for gamers and so much uh, variety out there if you go, if you go looking for it. Um, so it's not just narrative, but I think narrative in particular is is this space of the, the wild open frontier still um, uh, for developers to go off and, and explore in. I I think that yeah, like like you say, the narrative games are really to me this place where I can still be really surprised by uh, what kind of story is being told and. Uh, like neocab you know there's so many times where you can say like oh well this is this is a visual novel or something like that and i think a lot of people think of you know very uh japanese romantic uh you know notice me senpai kind of stories but this is such a a, a subgenre where you can explore tone and character at a slower methodical pace that doesn't have to be filled with uh, you know, side missions and and extra, you know, quote unquote content. Uh, you know, Final Fantasy VII just came out, and of course, that's one of the most iconic stories in all of gaming. But it's it's still got a lot of this like side content where a shopkeep tells you, "Hey, go kill ten rats for me." And it's like, well, what does that what does that do for Cloud's character? What does that do for you know Tifa or Aerith? And like, what does that do? Like, I'll still feel you know sad when Aerith dies. Spoilers, but. Uh, what is the, all this side stuff doing? And so I think that like, you know, a game like Neocab really surprised me, uh, not just for its broader story, but like for kind of the things happening in the margins of, uh, you know, it, it feels like a story that criticizes a lot of the Bay Area or or any major city, like the flakiness of people you will meet there. And like, that's, that's just something that I, I feel very personally. I've, I've been flaked on by many of uh, people in that area. Uh, and so many other, you know, themes that can only come from people who say like, I'm, I've got a story to tell. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I think wrapping up here a little bit, uh, I, I would be remiss to not ask, uh, you know, what we talked, we talked a little bit before we started recording, but 
what are the games that really played an important role in your life? You you mentioned that, of course, seems like it you know, grew up in the 80s and you were there during the like uh, very formative period of gaming where uh, store, the, the meaning of story in a game itself was very different. Uh, what, what do you remember most about like, I guess the, the things that you take as both a, a gamer and as someone who works in games from that era? Yeah, so I think in the 80s was a crazy time. The first gaming machine we had in our house was an Acorn Electron, right? Which was, I, I don't even know if that's known outside of the UK, but it was a it was a very, um, I think it had like 2K of RAM or something crazy, <laughs> right? But it ran Elite, right? So I remember playing that game and going, oh my gosh, like there's this whole universe here um, to explore. And it was incredible, Um in those days like that game was was just nuts compared to everything else um but you really could get transported to to that world and that so i think elite definitely showed me the power of games as a medium looking back on it um and you know there was obviously things like monkey island beneath the still sky were, were big favorites um when i got to play those on like the amiga and i think beneath the still sky was on like a 386 pc or a 486 pc i had to install a sound card so i could get the little beeps to play right <laughs> it's, it's going back a long way but um more than anything it, it's that you know it is that period of of games where a lot of stuff just hadn't been defined yet so the developers were not working within these like freeway lanes of of what it means to be like an fps or an rpg uh, and they were kind of inventing that stuff along the way so you never knew what you were going to get we uh it was a time when you could basically pirate games by copying them on a tape to tape um like cassette mm -hmm. player right so i you know i put my hand up i pirated a lot of games in those <laughs> days and i did buy a lot with my little bit of pocket money but you would get these tapes like um called c90 tapes right so the 90 minute tapes um and you would just have game after game after game on those tapes but you had no idea what the games were so you'd literally be pressing play and uh on the tape right because it would take five minutes for the game to load and and then you'd be like oh wow what's this game and then you'd try and figure it out and there'd be like 30 games on that tape and you'd be you'd still be discovering new ones um you know weeks and weeks after getting it so to me, it's that it's that sense of like not knowing what you were going to get and that discovery and just being amazed by what the potential of games were that that I think is why I've, I've then spent most of my career working in in this industry and I still believe in that potential and and um, uh, you know very excited about uh, I think ten years ago as indie games were coming through and and delighted that I made that transition from AAA to indie because it's it is getting back to that spirit of of what made me fall in love with games in the in the first place. The, the some things never really change i think with with narrative games uh, you still get that sense of well if you think with like a triple a game you can almost define it by the the sub genres it falls in well it's a third person action adventure with gears of war you know this reference that reference but a narrative game feels like those old tapes right where yeah sure maybe i can watch a trailer or something but like i haven't truly <laughs> begun to understand what a game like you know neocab or uh telling lies is what lies in wait for me uh until i open that up hit play and you know the the game starts rolling and i i think that's why you know uh, even though we we live in a great time where you know tri even triple a gaming is reaching really uh, incredible heights uh of cool storytelling it's 
there's still such a wonderful place where like I I look at the list I'm, I'm on ludonericon.com and of course near the bottom of the page you guys have all the the various games that are going to be featured this year and I'm just like I've played okay like six of these out of the 20 and I want to play all the rest uh I I hadn't even heard of some of these like Solace State or Chinatown Detective Agency but these are all things that like I, I, I am looking for something fulfilling and I, I am pretty sure narrative games are where I'm going to find it. So, uh, yeah, Chris, thank you so much for joining the 1099. I really appreciate your time. And I know you guys are ramping up here. The event is of course coming up very soon. Is there anything else, anything else you're excited for that people should really be on the lookout for with this year's events and, uh, anything that they should definitely keep their eyes on? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, look out for further announcements from us in the coming weeks. There's around 20 games on the website right now, but we'll actually have close to 40 or just over 40 games. We, we oh, expanded wonderful. and reopened the applications when GDC yeah, yeah. was cancelled. So there's another 20 or so that you're going to have to play as well. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely look out for that um, and go to the website and sign up to the you know the email list, etc., to, to make sure you get notified. Um, but we'll be announcing those and the panels and so on in, in the next... Um, the next couple of weeks um but yeah it should be a big weekend of if you like this kind of game then you know a lot of games to play a lot of games to to check out um and obviously a lot of panel panel discussions so um yeah we're really really looking forward to welcoming everyone to the event um virtually and uh and yeah should be exciting and we know and we know you folks are uh, are not going anywhere with the recent stay stay in place orders so you have no excuse to not check out ludo Naricon, which uh returns april 24th through the 27th that's on steam of course uh give it a check out uh make sure you play some of the demos uh chat with the developers during those uh little uh kind of like digital panels and it's going to be a good time. And Chris, thank you so much. And folks, you can find a new episode of the 1099 on your favorite podcast platform of choice, Spotify, iTunes, Google, what have you. And we've got uh, Michael Chu, the now former lead writer on Overwatch, coming on next. Uh, he'll be talking about his 20 years at Blizzard. I'm really excited. Uh, he seems like he's excited too, which is always a really good sign. And, uh, you know, with things, uh, with the coronavirus, COVID, uh, kind of throwing a into some things so I, I will be doing my best to make sure that you know we've got a consistent uh, lineup of interesting guests and conversations going on I might have to do a couple of like hey 1099 reviews episodes to fill in the gaps here and there but I am gonna do my best for you guys make sure that you guys have something uh, to keep you busy and some meaningful conversations to keep your brain uh, jogging <laughs> unlike me I have been uh, languishing in the quarantine boredom so thank you folks and we'll see you next time we